Hello? It's on? Okay. Before I play a piece, can you hear me in the back? Okay. Uh, not really? Yes. Okay. Before I play, um, I just wanted to say a couple quick things about the instrument because oftentimes when I play this, I get flooded with many questions. Um, it's not a UFO. It's... It's uh, it's made in Switzerland. Uh, it's an instrument that has been around for about five years. It's a hybrid between a steel drum, gamelan, gong, and tabla. <laughs> Believe it or not, those are the those are the instruments they study to to create this this unique sound. So um, I'm going to improvise a piece. Um, I hope you enjoy it. The name of the instrument is hung, H A N G which in the Swiss Bernese language means hand. Um, it's also a seed syllable in Sanskrit, I found out later. And it, in Sanskrit, it means um, luminous equanimity, which is a beautiful description of the sound of this instrument.
Before I was abducted? (laughs) (laughs) Have you been a musician? Uh, Since I was a kid, I like to beat on things, so. (laughs) So how long have you been playing this? I've been playing this for about four years. Whoa. Yeah. Whoa. So are there compositions? Like that was a composition? That was an improvisation. I do have compositions, but that was improvised. That was improvised. She was asking me if that was a composition. Uh, question back there? <laughs> she said, did you start out playing a hubcap? What was that? I didn't make this. I was fortunate enough to uh, to get it from someone who produced it in Switzerland, but there, there, aren't, there, there aren't that many of them in the world. And um, I just, I love, I love sound, so I play many different kinds of instruments. Yeah. Did someone teach you, or did you teach yourself? I just, I played around and discovered it. Yeah, wow. yeah. Wow. Well, that's lovely. You want to play 30 seconds more? <laughs> 30 seconds more. L- little performance anxiety oh. there, so yeah. No, no, okay, no. okay. No, I'll, I'll play. I, it, you know, it might be 35 or 36. 35 and, okay. <laughs> Would you like that? Yeah. Okay, thank you. <clears throat> um, this is a piece that I, that first composition was improvised. This is a uh, one that I composed. Uh, for my mother, who is now 93, and um, she's in an, in assisted living in Cleveland, and she's taught me a lot about um, how to prepare for leaving your body. She's been teaching us in very graceful and wise ways. So this piece is called Into the Mystery.
Terribly exciting always for me to think about um, the human potential for creativity. That not only uh, is Gary a gifted performer, a musician, but somebody thought up that thing. You know, somebody somebody figured that out. You know, and uh, uh, that 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 particular when you think of it, you know, the, the description of human beings as tool-making animals is not enough, you know, that <laughs> this is a far way from a, a, a tool to, that you need as an implement to feed yourself, or it's, it's, a, it's, a, it's a way to play, and it's a way to be uh, creative and beautiful. I actually, it, it lifts up my spirit like poetry does, doesn't it, you? Mm-hmm. Uh, somebody thought of that. Thank you very, very much. I think it's tremendously important to have ways in one's life to lift up the spirit, uh, the, 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 um, I can go from there to think about what I want to talk about tonight in this way. It seems to me that, um, that ideal of tranquil and alert that I spoke about before we started to meditate is uh, not so we'll become tranquil and alert because that's a pleasant way to be, but tranquil and alert, as I mentioned before, because that's the place from which we see what needs to be done and we do it and we behave in ways that uh, end suffering in ourselves and around us and lead to contentment and happiness in ourselves and around us. And tranquil and alert is a way of saying a mind that's uplifted and balanced, that hasn't fallen in on itself as my mind does. I think that as minds do, when I get preoccupied with challenges or knocked over by a, broadsided by a sudden challenge in my life, and that it's the, the, uh, among the ways that exist to lift up the mind from having been confused by a broadside is you can concentrate, you can bring attention, there are, uh, you can practice compassion for yourself or for the people around you. You can also look for what gives you delight that lifts up the mind. So that if I ask people, what do you do to keep your mind from drowning, from sinking? They'll say all the meditative answers, but they'll also say, I listen to music or I read poetry. I do something that lifts up the mind because there's something so extraordinary about it and picks it up. the way of seeing for myself the most important thing that we see when the mind is balanced enough to see clearly is where we are, where I am stuck in a view, um, where I'm stuck with something that is clouding my being able to see clearly and how I need sometimes to give up views in order to have the pleasure of seeing clearly and deciding on behalf of happiness or contentment. So I thought I'd talk about fixed views tonight. And I'll start by telling you a story, because it's always better to start with a story. Everybody likes to hear a story. And uh, this is a new story, so no one's ever seen it before. (laughs) Because it just happened, actually. I was... uh, uh, Someone asked me recently, they said, all the good stories happen to you. I said, no, 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 good stories happen to everybody. I am on the alert for a story, maybe. I was coming home from... um, um, a workshop, a, a conference at Garrison Institute in New York um, just, I guess, two weeks ago. And uh, the van driver that was um, driving four of the uh, presenters at the conference to the airport uh, was listening to the things we were talking about, and he got involved in the conversation somehow. And so we asked him questions about his life, and uh, he was uh, he was a musician, as a matter of fact. He was a musician who was driving a van because he said the, the you know the music business, like all businesses, is in trouble now. So 
about driving the van. He said, I'm a, I'm a musician. He played bass, bass fiddle. And he said, also, uh, I'm a volunteer fireman in uh, my town, which is a community up the Hudson River an hour from New York. And then he talked about how great it is to be a fireman. And then he said, I'll tell you the story. He said, uh, we had a new young man join the Volunteer Fire Corps uh, not so long ago. He said he was a young man who uh, hadn't done very well in his life. He, he had very poor self-esteem and he didn't feel good about himself. And he hadn't done well in school and he didn't know what direction his life was going to go in. And just generally didn't feel good about himself. But he managed to pass the physical and he seemed to have the enthusiasm and the interest and certainly could learn the pass the exam, whatever exam they had, for being a volunteer fireman. And he said, uh, and then uh, not so long ago, some months previously, he said there'd been a, a very serious fire in the local town. And he said, you know, I'm getting on in age. He said, you know, I'm 55 now, so I, I drive the truck now. I'm not the person who goes up the ladders or goes into the burning building said, but this young person, he said, he went into the building and he managed to get into a bedroom where there were three small children sleeping. And he said, and he opened the window and it was winter and it was snow outside and there was a fireman, fire person outside in the snow, he said, and he threw each of the children out into a snowbank where this other fire person could catch it. So these three children were rescued out of the fire and then he jumped out the window and he got out just as the floor to the room collapsed. And somehow the parents had gotten out of another window, so the end of the story for those children is not as tragic as it might be, if, certainly if they'd lost their parents. He said, uh, but uh, uh, he said this, uh, the fire department gave this man a, a distinguished medal. At the, they had a ceremony and they had uh, the newspaper there, and they took pictures of him, and they gave him a medal for his bravery. He said, and he was actually quite surprised about having had the medal because he thought it was ordinary to have done that. He said, but it was good that we gave him the medal because his esteem is going up. He feels better about himself now that he's got the medal. And it somehow directed his attention to the fact that his view about himself, that he wasn't a person of great worth and merit, got changed from that battle. It says it was good for him. And he ended by saying, you know, he was surprised uh, about the big fuss about him, he said, but I wasn't surprised, he said. This is the whole reason I'm telling you this story. He said, I wasn't surprised, he said. People are good. When they see what needs to be done, they do it. And I actually thought to myself, that's exactly what the Buddha was teaching when he said... This is what needs to be done by those who are skilled in goodness and who know the path of peace, which is the opening line of the Metta Sutta. That when people uh, have clarity of vision, they choose on behalf of their own happiness and they're able to wish well for themselves and for other people. There's a particular line in the Metta Sutta I'd like to read you the whole of the Metta Sutta. How many people have never heard the whole of it? Oh, this is great. Because I'd like you to pretend the, 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 the folklore, the story around the Metta Sutta is that the Buddha gave this teaching for... Oh, where is that Metta Sutta? The second... <laughs> No, it's got to be here, otherwise I know it by heart, but I'd rather have it. Wait, wait, wait. It's not this. Wait. But uh, the Buddha taught metta to monks that he was about to send out into, um, out into the uh, jungle to meditate on their own because uh, in those times uh, it was part of the culture to be afraid of the dark and afraid of evil spirits and... <coughs> Certainly not unreasonable to be afraid of wild animals or scorpions or snakes. And so the folklore around the Metta Sutta is he taught it to monks as a, oh, as an amulet, as a preventative, and that it would somehow, the recitation of it and uh, meditating on it would somehow be an amulet to ward off danger. 
I like to interpret that in our days as this is an amulet for warding off danger. I don't know about the scorpions and the tigers and uh, being in a forest by myself, but the danger of having one's mind fall into wrong view or the danger of having one's mind fall into enmity. Uh, The first line of one of the other metta chants is, may I be free of enmity and danger. And I think that perhaps one of the uh, understandings of it in the time of the Buddha was, may I be afraid of enemies coming after me with bad intent and the danger I would be in. But I think for myself, when I, th- when I say that line and when I think about it, that what I want to be is free of the danger of enmity in me, that it pollutes my mind, that it confuses my mind, that it catches my mind and my heart in painful stories that I'd like to have nobody on my inner list. Um, Everybody's laughing because they know that we have an inner list. (laughs) Do you know whether... Are you thinking the same allusion to the Mikado as I am? That uh, there's the Lord High Executioner in the Mikado uh, at some point in the operetta takes out a list from his inside pocket and he says, I've got a little list of people who never would be missed that, uh, that we each of us have filed away. Maybe we don't think about it every day, but we have filed away a list of people that we don't care for so much. It'd be all right if we never met them again. We don't actually wish them ill, but when you think about them, you think, oh, may I not meet them or in the... Everybody has that a little bit, and what I'm clear about is to the degree that I have anybody on my list, my own mind is not free to love wholeheartedly, and I am in danger of missing out on some pleasure in life. So I like to imagine, since um, the Buddha taught without handouts and Xerox copies, and, and for 300 years it was without handouts and Xerox copies, I'd like to uh, I'd like I'd like to pretend that especially if you haven't heard it before that you are hearing this for the very first time and actually listen to it as if you're listening for the most important line and I'll tell you actually if you take that on as a as a as a practice I think it'd be a good thing there are many lines that are the most important line actually most of them are the most important line <laughs> and I could argue on behalf of any one of them as being the most important line, and often do. So, this is what should be done by one who is skilled in goodness and who knows the path of peace. Let them be able and upright, straightforward and gentle in speech, humble and not conceited, contented and easily satisfied, unburdened with duties and frugal in their ways, peaceful and calm and wise and skillful, not proud or demanding in nature, let them not do the slightest thing of which the wise would later reprove, wishing in gladness and in safety. May all beings be at ease, whatever living beings there may be, whether they are weak or strong, omitting none, the great or the mighty, medium, short or small, the seen or the unseen, those living near and far away, those born and to be born, may all beings be at ease. May none deceive another or despise anyone for any reason. Let none through anger or ill will wish harm upon another, even as a mother protects with her life her child, her only child, so with a boundless heart should one cherish all living beings, radiating kindness over the entire world, spreading upwards to the skies and downwards to the depths, outward and unbounded, free from hatred and ill will, whether standing or walking, seated or lying down, free from drowsiness, one should sustain this recollection. This is said to be the sublime abiding. By not holding to fixed views, the pure-hearted one having clarity of vision being freed of sense desires, is not born again into this world. So do you know which is the most important line? (laughs) 
I'd like to suggest that they all are. And in fact, I I misunderstood this when I started to practice. When I first read it, I thought to myself, this is interesting. The Buddha has given a mandate that we ought to be able to love indiscriminately um, all beings, wish them well, certainly wish them to be at ease. There's a crucial line in there, omitting none, omitting none. You know, most people, they hear that, the, the, their first thought is, well, wait a minute, you wouldn't actually wish, want me to be thinking about wishing well too, and then they fill in the blank of, you know, one or another often political figure that, or historically political figure, or somebody who really caused, caused or is causing difficulty in the world. You really wouldn't want me to wish well towards them. Well, actually, it's really not so much wishing well for them, it's wishing yourself free of ill will and the pain of ill will, and actually, actually wishing well for them. Not that they necessarily thrive in their behavior, but with the understanding that if everyone felt well, they'd behave well. That is really, the Buddhism is, is quite remarkably optimistic about human nature. It's like the fireman. When you see what needs to be done, clearly you do it. Your mind is not confused with greed or lust or the desire for power. Then what's revealed to you is the fact that we all of us are suffering in this world with the same desire to be comfortable and the same challenges. And we take care of each other. It'd be a different world if everyone saw clearly. It's a radical idea, this indiscriminate, unconditioned love is what it's called. And it looks like it says, just do it. I used to think about it in a kind of a cavalier way. I'd say, oh, it's all very well. It's kind of, I'd say, you know, it's kind of like the, the Nike ad, just do it. And it doesn't actually give you instructions for doing it. And everybody knows that it's very hard to do it. But it's not like the Nike ad. It actually does give you instructions for doing it. And I'd like to submit to you that I think it gives the whole of the path instructions for doing it. So if, you, uh, if, if you're not familiar with the Buddhist path, and if you are a little bit, I'm going to do this very quickly because I want to get onto the fixed views. But I want, I want to repass it because the Buddhist path, the Eightfold Path, you remember, has the first three parts of it are behavior, sila practice. Um, you know, the other word for sila, um, um, behavior practice. Um, it's got a better word, but I'm not thinking about it at this moment. So it's right, right, right speech and uh, right action and uh, right livelihood, at working in a way that doesn't cause pain to others. And the middle part of sila, samadhi, Samadhi means really training the mind to be able to, the attention, to be able to stay with where you want it to go and to respond with habits that end suffering in yourself and in other people. So samadhi training is effort and mindfulness and concentration. And wisdom are the final two parts of the path and they are understanding and um, inspiration, aspiration. And the eight of them make up the Eightfold Path. And I'd like to submit that this is really instructions for the whole of the Eightfold Path. Listen to the beginning of it, and I'll tell you when we switch. This is, this is a sila practice, um, morality practice. That was the word I was looking for, morality practice. Let them be able and upright, straightforward and gentle in speech, humble and not conceited, contented and easily satisfied, unburdened with duties and frugal in their ways. Calm and peaceful, wise, skillful, not proud and demanding in nature. Let them not do the slightest thing that the wise would later reprove. That's the morality practice. Here's the training practice. Wishing in gladness and in safety, because that provides gladness and safety for the mind. Wishing. May all beings be at ease. 
whatever living beings there may be, near, far, born, unborn, omitting none. That's a very strong mind training practice. Wish all beings unconditionally. May you be well, may you be well, may you be well. Remembering, let no one deceive another, resisting the impulse to deceive, resisting the impulse to let the mind uh, hold anything in, in despise. Let none through anger or ill will wish harm upon another. Really, it means train the mind so that it only can think, it can respond only with goodwill. Leonard Cohen was the one who said, uh, even when it all goes wrong, I'll stand before the Lord of Song with nothing on my tongue but hallelujah. <laughs> it's the same. You need to really, the, the possibility of seeing the life in such clarity that nothing comes out but hallelujah or may you be well, a praise, a gratitude, a blessing. It's a very big mind training exercise. And you should do that, radiating it all over the world. And then the wisdom part, free from hatred and ill will, whether standing or walking, seated or lying down. Why does this have feedback? (laughs) Turn off the second microphone. Ah, there you go. Now it doesn't. the uh, wisdom part, um, free from drowsiness, this is said to be the sublime abiding. Here we go. By not holding to fixed views, that's the important part. The pure-hearted one having clarity of vision. Whatever fixed view I have about anything is not open to being questioned. Is this true? Is this true? Is this true? Actually, the fixed view of feeling it must be this way, otherwise I can't be happy. This is the most important fixed view that stands in the way of anybody really being happy. If there's anything... If you, if, if you start the sentence, I cannot be happy unless... then there is a fixed view that's standing in the way of happiness. By not holding to fixed views, the pure-hearted one, having clarity of vision... That's pretty self-explanatory. Is freed from sense desires. Lust goes away. You don't need anything. Anger goes away. You don't need to get rid of anything. Is not born again into this world. I love that line. And, you know, I don't know about... I really don't know about sequential lifetimes. I don't know if it is true or if it isn't true. I don't have a personal sense of it being one way or the other. But I think I am reborn into suffering a dozen times a day, maybe. Uh, each time my mind is caught with an idea that, that it contends with. It's, okay, I can't be... Look at this is happening. This shouldn't be happening. Every time I say to myself, this shouldn't be happening, I'm already suffering. Because it is happening. You know? And the idea of it shouldn't be is ridiculous. If it shouldn't be, it wouldn't be. It, the, the karma of the moment is... No, but seriously, the karma of the moment is that it is happening. And for me to be able to say... I mean, it's, it's a perfectly reasonable to say I don't, I'm actually not so pleased with what's happening. But it is happening. To be say, I don't like this, I'm, I'm not pleased with it. But I don't have to contend with it. It is happening. I don't like it. What can I do to change it? I mean, we are emotional beings. We do respond to things. So, by the way, I think this is the instructions for the whole thing. You think about not clinging to fixed views. I was trying to think of, uh, of examples from, that we would all know. Some, some, uh, so the two literary examples that uh, came into my mind is the fixed view of, um, in Macbeth of I, ha- I must be king. I need to be king. 
that the, the, the desire for power or the lust for power and the way in which that clouds the mind and the way in which one person can have that lust and infect somebody else with that lust and what havoc it brings. Or the, 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 uh, the story of Hamlet, who was driven by anger and revenge. I can't rest unless I avenge my father's murderer. And how, but the havoc that comes from that. And to think about, is there another way of thinking about um, noticing? How can we notice in our mind? What would be the way that we notice in our mind? Well, the, the presence of suffering means that we have not in some way seen that the mind has clung to something and needs something else in order to be content. It's extremely hard to change a fixed view. I need this. I, it's, and it's very complicated, you know. Sometimes uh, I'm tremendously moved by uh, the people who have been personally wounded by uh, someone who has hurt or sometimes killed a member of their family. I'm very tremendously moved by the people who are um, willing or feel compelled to appear on behalf of not not imprisoning the person but not killing them back. That that uh, that that are uh, eager to be a voice for sanity and not murder back. I'm very moved by that. I'm also moved, though, when I see uh, people being interviewed after an execution who say, you know, it's, it's 15 years ago that this happened and I have suffered these whole 15 years and now I feel better. And I don't understand that, but, you know, I believe it. And so I think about it. Because I, I don't really, I haven't really figured out how that works. There's a new book out. I haven't read the book but someone sent me a review of it. It's called Beyond Revenge. And it talks about uh, uh, revenge and forgiveness not as... Uh, he talks about revenge, the desire for re- revenge and the uh, possibility of forgiveness as uh, evolutionary... Uh, evolutionarily valuable uh, potentials that have developed along with human beings. I don't know if I said that quite clearly, so I'll go back and see if I can say it again. Actually, I'll I'll tell you in his words. He says, he says, the human propensity for revenge resulted for millions of years of evolution in which the capacity for revenge actually functioned as the solution to many social dilemmas that faced humans' evolutionary ancestors, such as the problem of self-protection in the face of violence and the problem of encouraging cooperation among groups of unrelated individuals. As an evolutionary adaptation, the desire for revenge is a cross-cultural universal and it is responsive to a small set of social conditions. From the point of view of natural selection, revenge is only a problem for humans today because it was such an effective solution to our ancestors. And apparently suggesting that it is so wired into us that it's hard not to have it. That Did you understand his, his explanation about you needed to remember who were your enemies so you could protect your clan? in an earlier time. And uh, not only your clan, but related clans, this particular line about encouraging cooperation among groups of unrelated individuals, that as there were more and more people and you came together, the line in the Metta Sutta that says, just as a parent would protect their only child, we're wired to protect our child and our kin, but to protect our neighbor and their kin, we have to have a sort of a group revenge possibility, or we did need to. 
I, I was, um, I'll tell you this story right now and then we'll come back to the rest of the revenge. I, I was in Garrison and needed the van driver, Garrison Institute, because I was going to a um, conference called uh, the, of the Mind and Life uh, Organization that um, is a, an umbrella organization for um, disseminating research uh, on m- brain functioning. They've met with the, the Dalai Lama many times over the last 15 years, all kinds of conferences exploring the Buddhist view of how the mind works and how and the ways in which it uh, can be now explained by neuroscience in terms of the the changes that happen when people meditate. How many of you saw the cover of? Oh, um, it's on the cover of lots of magazines now, but it was a cover of National Geographic, I think, one year ago in the spring where it's a picture of a monk, uh, uh, it was actually a Tibetan monk, with uh, 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 electrode leads from an EEG machine all over their head. It's a, it's a cap that they put on of electrode leads. It looks like an old-fashioned permanent wave machine <laughs> with all these wires going out of it, but you see that it's a monk and it's an EEG machine. Did you see that picture? It's very cute because it looks like a monk who is bald, having a permanent wave. But, uh, <laughs> but there, but people can now you can now have your. They, it's possible now to wire brainwave activity when people are thinking about people they love, and then they think about people that frighten them, or when they do compassion meditation, which moves the lights up a whole different part of the brain. And uh, really, the the training is suggesting now uh, the uh, the um, experiments that people are doing are more and more suggesting that the practice of meditation actually does uh, set up new neuronal circuits in the in in the brain, and that uh, the practice of loving kindness, for instance, even the practice of mindfulness, builds the possibility of having more patience in the mind so that instead of, in the brain instead of the the brain leaping to an instinctive response there's a a, a more uh, tolerant response and people determine that by uh, a variety of different uh, experiments i have the whole list of experiments if i'd have more time i would have told you more i'll tell you two because these were the ones that interested me the most. One of them bears directly on revenge, so it'll get us back to the revenge story. The other one is a little bit off, but it's important. Uh, the other one, not the revenge one, which I'm telling you first, is an experiment that was done with um, uh, the, the participants in the study were shown for a brief point in time, probably on a computer screen, what looked like uh, what what is a, a big s- square divided into nine boxes, and there's always a picture in the middle square on the on all of these slides that are presented to them, and in each of them there are some pictures in some of the outside squares, not all, and they move around what's in those pictures, but they're different all the pictures, and uh, uh, participants get to look at these slides. And then and get to say what they saw in them uh, after each one is over. What did you see? What did you see? What did you see? Then they do a period of um, they have a period of instruction in mindfulness, and they practice mindfulness meditation. I'm not sure whether they do it just that one day or for a week and come back. Then they see another set of slides so with the same idea of boxes with a box a picture in the middle and some other pictures. Not the same ones that they saw, so it's not just that they're getting to see that one better. And what they discovered with a you know, with uh, uh, enough uh, enough uh, precision to be able to say this actually is a uh, valid finding exper- uh, experimentally is that the people who met, after people had meditated, they saw more than what was in the middle box. They saw more of the surrounding boxes. They had what I and the, the the presenter suggested, and that seemed to me to mirror what happens to me in my mind, is that people not only saw what was most clearly 
presented, where the eye goes always to the middle. But it got some of the information around it as well. I think that's the way my mind operates when it uh, goes from being really annoyed at somebody to having a more tolerant view of them. Somebody in my life or in my work or in something, but in my some in some interaction does something, and it annoys me. And all I can see for the moment is they're so annoying. This is intolerable what they are. And then as I as I well, you see if this happens to you. If time goes by, if I come here and sit, or if I sit at home, and uh, this is a this is an imprecise uh, term for meditation, but if my mind relaxes, if I'm precisely with my breath or my experience of my body for a while, and then I think about that same person, I remember what they did, but I also remember that I love them, and most of the time they're terrific. And generally, you can count on them to change. And if I bring this up, it'll be all right. More information from the rest of my life fills in. And the net result is that I make a wiser choice. Does that make sense to you? Does that happen to you? I mean, it's, 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 it's really ridiculous when you think anybody here is in relationship. In a, of a, everybody's in relationship. <laughs> everybody who lives with everybody. You don't have to be in an intimate, personal, one-on-one relationship, but with everyone that we're in relationship to, doesn't it happen sometimes that you get mad at your people? (laughs) Never? In the moment that you're mad, they seem intolerable, don't they? And Why am I with this person? I mean, they're so terrible. And then time passes, and if we're fortunate enough not to have said anything in the interim, (laughs) time passes, and the rest of the picture fills out. Is that true? remember a few other things about them. But the thing about the mind is that when it is startled, it gets frightened and it fixates on the event of the moment. And it literally forgets all that other stuff. It ignores it. It's getting ready for a fight. It has to have just what's the matter. And after a while, you remember, well, this, but also this, 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 and this. I thought that was tremendously important to talk about as a finding because so much of our life is lived in relationship, intimate and otherwise. And to be able to hold somebody in a larger frame than just the one thing that comes up in your mind about them. Particularly true in the season of politics. It's just really hard to have a whole view. Not a The other experiment that I remember so well is participants are shown a movie of uh, a couple, actually in this case a man and a woman, and having some interaction. And in this particular movie, the man is really um, stubborn and unyielding and unpleasant. And one has a sense, everybody who saw the movie, men and women, felt very sympathetic to the woman afterwards. And they felt annoyed and angry with this man. You know, it's like when you go to a movie and you don't like the villain. They didn't like the villain. Then they did a practice of meditation, all of the participants. Uh, and they, uh, again, of mindfulness, not of loving kindness, but just mindfulness settles the mind down, gives it a broader perspective. They see the movie again. Half of uh, the people felt somewhat more tolerant of the man, uh, not that it wasn't uh, unpleasant to them what he was doing and how he was behaving, but they began to construct stories like, well, you really don't know about the whole rest of his life and you really don't know about the whole rest of their life and you really don't know what factors went into this particular interchange and what else was going on. And the half of the people who... And the other half still felt as annoyed. And the half that felt more tolerant were by and large the women. And the part that felt annoyed were the men. So they say, excuse me for presenting these findings, but it actually does look like men have more trouble letting go of the urge for revenge than women. But here is this finding saying that evolutionarily, it was probably fell upon the men to protect the community, and that revenge wiring is probably in there a little better. So that then uh, for any of us that maybe have the thought that men are, you know, it actually makes a little bit more tolerant about them 
comes from a comes from evolutionarily taking care of their kin, so not so bad. This is very interesting. It says uh, this particular experiment that we're back on the revenge said that the human capacity to forgive is not an invention or a discovery that people deliberately develop to control a runaway propensity for revenge, but rather an evolved feature of human nature that arose solely through the force of natural selection to help ancestral humans solve adaptive social problems they encountered, namely conflicts of interest with their genetic relatives and with unrelated cooperation partners, which became increasingly important as humans became more and more dependent on living among non-relatives for survival. The same thing. We keep the revenge to protect the group, and we also develop the art of forgiveness so that we don't so that we can at least live in a group because groups will anno- everybody will annoy somebody so that it was an evolutionary uh, a plus to have the a possibility for forgiveness it goes on to say that forgiving happens more when people live in society in which their rights are protected in which they're relatively safe from victimization, and which in which offenders are given incentives to apologize and compensate their victim. The desire for revenge is slaked, and the forgiveness instinct is automatically um, activated. You know, the, the, the people who are able to say, as I mentioned before, that uh, they somehow, through their pain, are able to have compassion for the offender, able to say, given his circumstances, given his background, he couldn't do otherwise. Not that it was an okay thing for him to do, but he couldn't do otherwise. In a sense, it isn't his fault. It's the fault of all of his or her karma back forever and ever and ever. But it's hard not to become either frightened or angry. Uh, it's hard to have that kind of clarity of vision when we feel wronged. And so maybe because we have very few little time left, uh, I want to put in a word for um, the ability to take some t- the need to take some time to forgive, to get over the impulse for revenge. There's a story that's told in the Zen literature about... Uh, a Zen priest in Japan some oh, hundred years ago, it's an old story, um, who has some people knock at his door one day and present him with an infant child and say, this child was just born to this woman who says that you are the father, uh, so you need to take care of it now. And he says, is that so? And he takes a child. And uh, three years later, they come back, knock, 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 uh, they say, you know, it's the the uh, the man who actually was the father of the child has come back. He's confessed, and uh, he and the mother now want the child back, so we've come to get it back. And in the story, the priest says, is that so? And gives it back. So every time I tell that story in class, people are really shocked. They say, what's the matter? You know, is this what Buddhism is about? You know, have any feelings? It actually doesn't say that the monk doesn't have feelings. I didn't like that story for a long time either because it looked like Zen was very dispassionate and Buddhism was very dispassionate and everybody would really get all incensed. You know, three years a child lives with you. You don't just give it up. You know, wouldn't you feel? I want, yes, you would feel. I, I actually have really decided that that story doesn't mean anything about how the monk feels. It's how the monk deals with what seems to be coming down. You know that if it looks like that's a fait accompli and it's going to happen, then you deal with it. But I, re- I really wanted to end with making a case that it's hard to let go of especially strong feelings. There's a new book out, not so new anymore. Um, there was a contest for. Uh, Writing your autobiography in six words. Do you know about that? <laughs> but this, uh, this has hundreds of autobiographies written in six words. Um, the winning, the winning six-word autobiography is the title of the book. 
title of the book is not quite what I was planning. <laughs> for anybody. For anybody. Here is a, one of the, this is, this is, this is, I mean, some of them are funny. Uh, I'd rather be watching a movie. Really doing fine, thanks for asking. <laughs> but this is the one that really I wanted to tell you. It says, was father, boys died, still sad. Aww. You know, we, we, we are, we're feeling people. I don't think there's a timetable for mourning. Nobody can tell you when you get over grief, how long. Glass half full, pockets half empty. (laughs) Want to be heroine, but just plain Jane. (laughs) Lucky in love, unlucky in metabolism. Nobody knows how I have suffered. (laughs) Take a left turn, then fly. Left Aruba for Maryland, pretty dumb. (laughs) I was never the pretty one. Born at 23, childhood doesn't count. Really, that's what I meant to say. I had some other things, but it's almost it's almost nine fifteen. That really, what I wanted to say is that uh, by not clinging to fixed views, we really would be free. But in case you're clinging, not to make a bad time of it, was father boys died so sad. It takes a long time to get over stuff. I think that sadness is not a chelation. It's not a uh, It's not a hindrance. Um, It's just a state. Um, And it lasts a long time, sometimes. Actually, I I remembered that... uh, Well, we have one minute. I uh, I was... uh, I, uh, I just read what happened... Uh, Scott McLellan's book. And um, I want to tell a story completely not as a political... Because I, I, I really was very touched by it in terms of not clinging to fixed views. How many of you have read it? Anybody read it? It's very well written uh, because it's very temperate. It's not... Uh, it's, not um, it's not outrage. It's not... Um, it's not particularly partisan. It's a story of how a, a young boy who grew up in a very political family and ran his mother's political campaigns for mayor and for congresswoman and got a job just out of college in the governor's office in, in Texas and ultimately got to be the press secretary for three years and um, was tremendously idealistic and committed and his view of how things were, and how slowly, slowly, slowly he was presented with evidence of it's not how I think it is, and how difficult it was to see that. And um, I was I was very touched by him. I I, uh, I hurried to come to the end to make sure he was all right. You know, because I felt really I felt really as if I were his mother, and I felt badly for his. Um, needing to acknowledge what he hadn't seen before. And I was very, very uh, admiring of his ability to acknowledge. I didn't see this and I didn't see that. But when I did, I was compelled to do otherwise. And
<laughs> the thing with views is that, you know, other people have views, I have truths, is how it is. And <laughs> so let's sit for one minute. May the merit we accrue for being here together and studying and listening and sitting and hoping that we can transform our own minds from all the habits that continue to cause afflictive emotions to arise in us to the habits that lead to peace and contentment and compassion. May that merit be offered freely for the well-being of all beings everywhere. May all beings everywhere feel safe. May they all feel strong. May the world be a place where we share the resources of the world for the health and well-being of all the beings on it. May all beings feel the pleasure of kin and companionship. May all beings be at ease. Thank you very much for coming. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.